Remain standing for our scripture lesson in Second Corinthians chapter six, verses three through ten. And Paul continues, he says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. The last couple of weeks we've had very short scripture lessons, like two verses, and we're making up for that this week and next week, as Lord willing, we'll traverse chapter 7, verse 2 next Lord's Day. But for today, let's pray and commit our way to the Lord. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Feed us him, the bread of life, in the word today, preached. The gospel, the grace of God that every saint needs and every sinner needs, all of us need. For we are sinner saints, and only Jesus is our righteousness. We consecrate our ministries as servants of God to you, and we come in Jesus' name. Amen. So, just recently I've come to believe that 2 Corinthians 5.20 through at least 2 Corinthians 7.2 mostly has to do with the Apostle Paul's call to the Corinthian church to embrace him, Paul, in his ministry of Christ in that era and epoch, his gospel work, and in so doing finally and forever abandon the false apostle Judaizers who had caused so much trouble in the Corinthian church and other places where Paul had planted churches in the first century. And this issue then becomes a paradigm for every epoch and era of church history throughout all ages, the issue of authority, if you will. Frankly, I used to be quite confused about the seeming oddity of the placement of Paul's words of verses 18, 14 through 18 of chapter 6, which, Lord willing, we'll get to look at next Lord's Day. But now I've come to believe that they, those verses, negatively reflect the false apostles and positively speak of the good ministry of the true one. So in light of this, dears, you can see that whom we listen to the, the gospel preacher is important. That needs to be taken with a great deal of seriousness. And you and I can perceive this, especially if this interpretation of these verses is correct, which I believe it is. And therefore, let us make it our goal this Resurrection Day to follow and be the ministry servants of God, looking together at 2 Corinthians 6, 3 through 10. We know we have some visitors with us today. This is where we begin the outline, if you'd like. The title of the sermon is The Ministry of the Servants of God. First, the doctrine, 
The Holy Spirit is setting up a contrast between the true and false apostles. Now, I intimated that in my opening comments, and it stands, I think, as the faithful guiding principle of these and the surrounding verses of this text. It must be admitted that if our understanding is correct, and I believe it is, then the false apostles and errant teachers and heretics of all ages in the life of the church are subjected to the harshest evaluations of the written word of God imaginable. In light of this, then, let us now come to better comprehend and appreciate why the Holy Spirit is setting up a contrast between the true and false apostles. First, because everything will depend on this. Now, what do I mean by everything will depend upon the resolution of the great debate between the false apostles and the true ones? I mean, dears, that the entire superstructure of the gospel, the church, and the hope that any sinner would or ever could be saved was at stake. And so the stakes were very high indeed. Indeed, if our interpretation of Scripture here is right, then it tells us a lot about how we view the Word of God and its authority. Everything was on the line. If the false apostles were to win back there in 50s A.D., first century, we are all dead meat with no hope whatsoever. If the true apostles prevailed, then we have before us right there in the Word of God the living, vital, powerful testimony, word, witness, gospel of God himself. Are you beginning to get the idea that this is a big deal? These are important issues, and they are. The doctrine of Scripture is a key important one. Paul certainly saw this very clearly, the critical nature of what was in the balance, and we're going to pursue that even a little bit more now. The Holy Spirit is setting up a contrast between the true and false apostles. Everything will depend on this, so Paul drives this point home all the way through at least 2 Corinthians 7 too. So, again, if this interpretation is correct then all of these verses that Paul is speaking of here and writes essentially call the false apostles later, in next week's lesson, unbelievers, lawless ones, darkness, and idolatrous worshipers of Belial in verses 14 through 16a of the sixth chapter of Second Corinthians. Now why is all that so pertinent, important, relevant, to us today, because the same dynamic is in play in every generation. The issue of authority is always on the line, for we are all under authority, and all of us follow someone or something. Indeed, there's, it is true that every single one of us follow someone or something. Now, many professing Christians will, with their mouths, profess to ultimately believe the Bible to be the absolute standard of truth, faith, and practice. And that's good that they profess that. But in fact and reality, in many cases, dear saints, they actually believe or follow something or someone else. And this is where we all need to look to our hearts. What is it that we really follow? It could be another book, a guru, 
a counselor, a mentor, a coach, a guide, something other than the Word of God. It could be a tradition. It could be a culture, a cultural tradition. It could just be the strength of emotions overwhelming all biblical reason, if you will. Now, none of these things I mentioned are necessarily in themselves bad. They have mentors and coaches and, and counselors and guides, and God gives us other books. In themselves, they're not necessarily bad. Some traditions are good. Some cultural traditions are good. Even some of our emotions that drive us have a place. But... If any of those things ever seek to take the place of or advise against the clear doctrines of the written word of God, then they are wicked, idolatrous, dangerous, and wrong. So every single one of us, as far as I know us here today, essentially and basically know what the Holy Scripture says and teaches. Okay, none of us can plead ignorance. We may not be Bible scholars or whatever, but we know essentially what it says. The Holy Spirit within us confirms that the written word of God is true. We know it's true. And if the Holy Spirit lives within us, we have no doubt that it's true. Then, if all this is the case, what, when it comes to crunch time, what will it be that we inevitably decide upon whom following and believing? And that's going to come out even more in the subsequent verses from the text for next week. So there's the doctrine. The Holy Spirit is setting up a contrast between the true and false apostles. Now from the text, let us appreciate the spirit of the ministry of the servants of God looking at verses 3 to 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now today's text is going to comfort us. It's going to demonstrate to the true saints of the church what the legitimate, authentic ministers, servants of God do and characterize them. The authentic, certified guides and leaders of Christ's church. We'll discover that they, just like you, suffer a lot. They are also subjected to the hatred and despising of the world, which would wipe us out if it could, except we have a good shepherd that protects us. This world would take the tenderest and gentlest of God's lambs and eat them alive, but God doesn't allow that. Let us now more fully imbibe the spirit of the ministry of the servants of God, which is characterized by divine authority and humility, verses 3 through 4a. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. So the issue of authority, again, is front and center, but it's always joined to humility. The Apostle Paul never lorded his authority over the congregations that made up the church in the first century, many of which he was instrumental in planning. He did not lord his authority over them. Instead, he served them. 
He was there to minister to them, to care for them. But authority, nonetheless, was an important issue because if they were to reject him and go with the false apostle Judaizers, they're doomed to hell because that's a gospel of works and law and self. There was a lot on the line. But notice how pastoral the apostle Paul is here. After earlier appealing with the Corinthians in verse 1b to not receive the grace of God in vain, he now, quote, puts no obstacle in anyone's way, verse 3a. He wasn't interested in that sort of unnecessary, worldly, foolish way of doing things. He wasn't going to put any obstacle in anyone's way. And he refers to himself and his ministerial comrades as, quote, servants of God whose commendation to the Corinthian church would be characterized not by self-aggrandizement or serving of self, but by humble submission to God, which we'll see in the text that immediately follow. But before we leave verses 3 and 4a, please notice that Paul is very solicitous that, quote, no fault be found with his, their, our ministry. Because if the ministry falls... Everything comes apart. Everything starts with the Holy Trinity. He comes down through the ministry, the pulpit ministry, the sacraments, the ministry of the church, prayer. And if the ministry falls, the whole world disintegrates. Now, of course, that can't happen. God won't allow it. But it would. Everything is dependent upon it. The spirit of the ministry of the servants of God is characterized by divine authority and humility and is credentialed by every gospel distinctive, verses 4b through 8a. Credentialed children means um, made shown to be true, if you will. So let's read these verses. By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger... By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. That's quite a remarkable list there that Paul gives. And you all are going to have to have very good shorthand to stay up with me, but we're going to break these two lists, this one being the first one down. This one has five basic categories to it, and here they are for you. First, verses 4b through 5, it speaks of apostolic suffering. The ministry of God's true servants is cleansed and refined through hardships. Look at all the stuff he talks about, riots, beatings, sleepless nights. This is not stuff any of us would want. You think that the false apostle Judaizers would put up with one sleepless night for Jesus? Not a chance. No way. He's saying we would do it, not because we're so great, not because we're practicing asceticism, but because we love the God who's called us to the sacred ministry. And we will do, we'll bear the cross and do whatever he tells us to do. Secondly, genuine apostles and ministers are characterized by miraculous, 
Christ-like character seen in verse 6. I mean, only God could do that. Purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, genuine love. Only God can do that. That doesn't come out of the hearts of fallen sinners. That's miraculous grace. Third dimension, describing legitimate servants of God, are honest words propelled from heaven, verse 7a. Truthful speech, power of God. Yeah, that's pretty good. Truthful speech and the power of God. Fourthly, real apostles and ministers are classified by valiancy or bravery demonstrated in the proper use of spiritual weaponry, verse 7b. Interesting text there. Pretty politically incorrect. With the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And by the way, dears, you understand that weapons aren't just for show. Weapons are used to do some damage. And the sheep of God must be protected against the wolves, the robbers, the thieves, the heretics. And the shepherds, even the under-shepherds, need to use those weapons and beat those wolves to a pulp, if necessary, and drive them totally out of the sheepfold to protect the flock. And then finally, here, this distinctive of God's, not Satan's, church leaders is resilience, perseverance. Verse 8a, where the apostle there talks about honor and dishonor, slander and praise. So he knows he's going to get it from all sides, right? He understands that he's not going to be given a lot of, of slack. He's not going to be given very much good at all. From, he's not going to get anything good from the world. He understands that. He's not looking for that. And this is an important dynamic. Whether things are good or bad, the faithful ministers and parishioners in the church steadfastly remain faithful to Christ, who is the captain. Now, why do you think Paul felt compelled to write that list and the verses that follow, which is another list which we're going to look at, Lord willing? Why do you think he did that? I would say a big part of it was to show the stark difference between the true apostles and the false apostles, the game players, who would never willingly endure anything, even for a moment, for Jesus Christ. Whereas the true apostles, the true ministers, the true Christians, the true parishioners will. Now, without going into a lot more detail about the particulars mentioned in these verses, suffice it to say that all of them were designed by the Holy Spirit to, quote, commend, verse 4a, the true apostles, and by extension, all authentic ministers and members of the church, to the hearts and minds of all fair-minded inquirers who might indeed look at these two types of people and have to make a decision, who am I going to follow? And remember, I already taught you that all of us follow something or someone. The question is, who is that really? Not our, our face, our outward expression, our sort of public image, but what is it really? And they would be faced with that issue too. 
And indeed, only regenerated people could or would be given the label fair-minded inquirers because all unregenerate people will find some reason, some excuse to get out of that, off that hook and out of that mess, which calls everyone to account before a holy God. Now, is this list all negative? Are are we tempted to think, wow, sleepless nights, riots, imprisonments, beatings, it sounds pretty bad. No, it's not all negative. Some of the grandest and glorious beings and virtues are mentioned in that list, including the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit himself, and the glorious virtues of love, purity, truth, etc. My dear parishioners, if you are serious about Christ, then you're serious about your faith. And I don't need to tell you to be. I don't need to teach you to be. You already are. If you're serious about your faith, you're serious about Christ, which means you're serious about the things that matter. Christ, his church, his gospel, his day, his worship, and from there, all the rest of life. You're serious about getting it where it should be, because that's important to you. And that's a glorious thing if that's true of you. But as you do this, you'll find that your Christian life and adventure is just that, quite an adventure. Uh, You're going to go through some wonderful, heavenly, glorious pastures of rich, verdant wonder of love and grace and mercy. You'll feel like you're in heaven. There are other times you'll traverse the dark valley, the valley of death, the difficult times. The times where you feel despairing and downhearted and ready to quit. But you won't. You won't. You'll stay true because God's made you serious. And all the while, the reason for that is not because you're so great. It has anything to do with you. It doesn't have anything to do with you. It has everything to do with the sovereign God and Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who's called you to be his sheep. And you will follow him because he's the good shepherd. And he provides you under shepherds who also be with you to lead and guide you into the way of truth who is the person of Jesus. The spirit of the ministry of the servants of God is characterized by divine authority and humility, is credentialed by every gospel distinctive, and finally is crowned by the Father's victory in Jesus, verses 8b through 10. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. In recent weeks I've been teaching you your The the true Christians, the really regenerate Christian church members, they are, biblically speaking, the poor and oppressed and afflicted of the earth. It's not what the world says is the poor, afflicted, and prejudiced against, and discriminated against of the earth. No, no. No. It's not true at all. The true Christians are. And these verses really bring that out, I think. And yet, here's the flip side. You're poor, afflicted, oppressed, and yet you're the richest people possible. 
You're the most exalted people possible. You're the most blessed people possible. There are two diametric extremes going on here. It's a marvelous, miraculous work of God. Now, I really like this part of Paul's list. Everything bad is followed by everything good. And the good far outweighs and outbalances the bad. Now, briefly, very briefly, I'm going to give you the seven categories mentioned here in these two and a half verses. Now, if you don't get these, just go back and listen to the the tape or uh, talk to me later or have really good shorthand. So first, divine credibility, verse 8b. Guess I could go back and look at these, help you a little bit. We're treated as imposters and yet are true. Secondly, godly transparency, verse 9a, as unknown and yet well known. So really, the, the true Christians, yes, the world doesn't really know us, but we are who we are, right? This is who we are. Third, spiritual invincibility, verse 9c, as dying and behold, we live. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry, I missed one. Resurrection life. That was resurrection life, verse 9b. 9b is dying and yet we live. So there's this sense in which we feel like we're dying and yet we're always living. Next, spiritual invincibility, verse 9c. As punished and yet not killed. So there's a sense in which we're unkillable in this world. As long as God wants us here, we're unkillable. Think about Jesus Christ. Satan always wanted to rub him out in the Old Covenant and the New. Even after his birth in Bethlehem, Herod tried to kill all the boys. During his ministry, no one could kill him until it was time. Same thing with Paul, same thing for us. Next, supernatural buoyancy, B-U-O-Y-A-N-C-Y. Verse 10a, the ability to be always coming back to the top as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. It's pretty amazing. Next, eternal resources, verse 10b, as poor yet making many rich. And then finally, rule and ownership of the entire world, verse 10c, as having nothing yet possessing everything. You do understand, dear saints of the church, true and honorable Christian church members who love Jesus, You own everything. Yet the world would think we own nothing. But they own nothing. You own everything. You are the viceroys under Christ. Adam was originally given all of it. He squandered it. Jesus, the second and last Adam, came. He won the inheritance. He's given it to his children in the church, the elect of God. All these blessings are found in the treasure chest of Jesus Christ himself. 
And all of them are experienced by all the faithful members of his redeemed church. Keep in mind what Paul is doing here as he chronicles all these historical occurrences that happen to him and all these extreme traits that characterize him. What he's really doing is not wanting the people look at him so much, although it had to be that they would make this choice in Corinth, but rather he was extolling Christ, he was establishing the credibility of God's revelation in the minds and hearts of redeemed, regenerated saints in the church, and he also encounters and defeats all God's foes, all those who wish to counterfeit the Lord's truth, i.e., in their case, the Judaizers. Let us be thankful that this eminent apostle did all this, and let us marvel at the unspeakable wonder of his grace, providence, and sovereignty. As always, after doing the exegesis, we want to apply these truths to our hearts even more. So let's do that now and comprehend why the delineation between the true and false apostles is still critical for the church today. Someone might think, What does this ancient battle between the authentic and pretentious apostles have anything to do with me, us, the church, the world today? Well, it has everything to do with you, me, us, the world. Everything, because had the truth failed, which, by the way, is not possible, we grant that, but had that happened, we would even today possess no assurance, especially of New Testament divine revelation. Paul would always be called into question. Was he really right? Or were the lawmongers right? Were the works righteousness people in the right? That very religion that all of our fallen flesh loves so much. Righteousness with God without Christ, which doesn't exist. Sort of appealing appealing back to a state before the fall. Therefore, it should be more easy for us to discern why the delineation between the true and false apostles is still critical for the church today. First, because following the false ones leads to works and hell. And this still happens today, dear saints, and don't fool yourselves. You know, the longer I became a pastor and the more years, I I just became amazed to realize people never seem to get over this. And I'll guarantee you, if you're not regenerate, you're stuck in this hole. It's all about works. What I do. How I perform. Law. And plenty of people are very happy to listen to that, to accede to it, to follow it, to pander to the peddlers of false gospels. That feeds the flesh. The flesh loves it. It's no wonder that a lot of feel-good churches are full, maybe not today because of the snow. People love this sort of thing. Pandering to the flesh. Telling me what I want to hear. But all of these untruthful heralds of man's and Satan's illusory hopes are all built on the flimsy, termite-written, cracked, and uneven foundation of works, law, performance, and self-righteousness. All of them lead to hell. Someone might say, well, what does it really hurt to add a little something to the work of Christ? To sprinkle in just a little dab of feel-good religion, of works, of law. 
What does it really hurt? Does that really hurt? <laughs> Look at the history of the church and you'll know the answer to that question. It's lethal. It's lethal because it denies implicitly, if not explicitly, the absoluteness of Christ's vicarious atonement for sinners, and it would render Jesus' sacrifice for sinners ineffectual by adding anything to it. Anything. This is one of the glories of the Reformation, which we just enjoyed celebrating last month so much. Sola, sola, sola. Scripture, Christ, faith, grace, glory of God. And this is also why the Apostle Paul, if you've read his letters and you've wondered why is he so adamant? Why is he so serious? Why is he so committed to defending his apostleship? Well, because in so doing, he was safeguarding the true gospel. And this naturally leads to our very last point. The delineation between the true and false is still critical today because the false lead to works in hell while following the true ones leads to Christ in glory. And notice that we're saying we do follow the true one, the true apostle. And we're saying it unapologetically. We are following the true apostle. You understand that yours is a historical faith. It's based on history. It's based on eyewitness accounts of people that we trust, like the apostle Paul, who saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. We believe the testimony of, a, of eyewitnesses and the doctrine of Christ-appointed apostles, like Paul, and not the Judaizers. We reject all substitutes, counterfeits, and additions. We reject them. Therefore, let us cling to Jesus today by faith, a faith that is grounded in history, Scripture, and the person of Jesus Christ himself, that glorious, ultimate revelation of God, the person of Christ through whom God made the entire universe and through whom all the elect are saved by his blood. That blood was shed for our sins while we were lost, dead, rebellious, God-hating rebels. His resurrection on the third day secures for us our justified standing before God. 100%. All your sins are forgiven. All of them. He's validated as the ultimate Messiah, the King, the Lord of glory. Beloved, the ministry of you, the servants of God, is reflecting the ministry of the servants of God whether they're in the pastoral ministry, the apostles of old, ultimately it reflects the great apostle, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's a ministry of joy, suffering, triumph, and hope. As the true church dears, we will struggle. We will sin. We will have a long way to go. But let us seek, by God's grace, to be exemplary models of the ministry of the servants of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing text that you gave us from 
Second Corinthians. <clears throat> We're grateful that Paul would write what he did. He probably would rather not have even had to talk about himself. He's going to do it again later in this epistle, talking about the great miracles that he experienced. But he did it not to puff himself up. He did it for the good of the entire church in every era. To defend forever the true gospel against all errant ones. We thank you for Jesus, who is the object of that gospel and the focus of our faith and love. And we bless you in him alone. Amen.